Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by tweakedaudio.com. Want some earbuds? Want some headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the offer code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Tweakedaudio.com, enter the offer code O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Get 33% off of any purchase when you do that. Get some earbuds, get some headphones, listen to things with those devices. Tweakedaudio.com, these are earbuds, these are headphones. You can listen to things with them, go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two people fully talking. This is thousands of people half listening. How are you? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. What is going on? What's up with you? How are you feeling? Uh, It's good to be with you. My guest today is Heidi Pittler. Heidi Pittler. She's a writer. Her latest novel is called The Daylight Marriage, and it is due out in May from Algonquin Books. Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Uh, Heidi is also an editor. Did you know that? She is she is the editor of the Best American Short Stories Anthology, which comes out every year. And uh, I imagine most of you are familiar with it. You've seen it in your bookstore. Uh, perhaps you've cradled it in your hands. And I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, you guys have probably thought to yourself, who does this? Who's responsible for the Best American Short Stories Anthology that comes out every year? Uh, well, it's Heidi Pittler. She's the editor. She brings on a guest editor, someone of renown. I believe last year it was Jennifer Egan. That's the way it, you know. That's the way it goes. But Heidi Pittler drives that bus, and she's also a fine novelist. So uh, I'm going to be talking with her about all of it in just a minute, and uh, she's going to reveal, among other things, exactly how the stories in the Best American series are selected. 
And let me just put it this way, a lot of money changes hands. If you want one of your stories in that collection, you better be ready to write a check. Of course I'm kidding. Hey guys, would you do me a favor? Would you go rate and review the show over at uh, iTunes? Can you do that for me? Can you take two minutes of your life to rate and review the Other People podcast? Preferably a good rating, preferably uh, a glowing review. That helps. I'd like to thank Brad for the podcast. (laughs) 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 Something like that. Just any any kind of rambling, positive, effusive praise. (laughs) I'd like to thank my mom. I'd like to thank my dad. I'd like to thank the Listy. I'd like to thank my dads. I'd like to thank my moms. I'd like to thank my dogs. I'd like to thank my sisters. I'd like my whole family. I'd like to thank the other people. I forgot that I even had this. This is exactly what I'm talking about. This is what I need. And I'd like to thank the monologues. And I'd like the dialogues. I love these guys. I need more of this. I already mentioned the dogs. I thank God. Thank God. And Brad Listy. Brad Listy. Yo, yeah, here. So, anyway, so what's going on? An update on the pregnancy. I guess I should give you guys this news. We are doing tests right now. Some sort of fetal scan revealed some uh you know numbers that were higher in the measurements of the child's brain so we're now we did a fetal mri and we're monitoring and there could be fluid but i mean it's like i'm hesitant to talk about it because it's speculative and you just can't know but there i guess there is some elevated risk that there could be um, developmental delays or some sort of brain problem with our child not fun so Uh, And there's also a good chance that everything could be fine. I have a friend who's a neurologist. He's telling me not to worry too much. But, you know, good luck with that. The, you know, lateral ventricles are measuring at the higher end of the spectrum. You know, all this kind of stuff. My wife's 40. These kinds of things, uh, you're at a higher risk of these kinds of things when you're an older mother. Blah, blah, blah. So keep, uh, keep my boy in your thoughts if you have a moment. Hopefully it's all fine. I'm going to choose to believe that it's all fine. What else? Uh, I went out to dinner last night here in Los Angeles. I tweeted a little bit about this. I went out to dinner with uh, my friend Lauren Sarand. Uh, Some of you may know her, literary publicist, hailing from New York City. And uh, we had a fine dinner. We had a good time. And uh, I was sitting right next to Dustin Hoffman the entire time and had no idea. He was literally sitting next to me. Uh, to my right, and I did not even notice him. So I missed that one. I, I didn't see Dustin Hoffman, but I, I did sit next to him for over an hour. So I have that to, uh, to tell my grandchildren. My guest once again is Heidi Pittler. Her new novel is called The Daylight Marriage, available in May 2015 from Algonquin. You can pre-order it right at this moment. Very pleased to have her here on the show. We had a great time talking. Here she is. This is Heidi Pittler. I'm in a town called Natick, which is known for its mall. Um, and, I'm, you know, there's a lot else in this great town. But because we have a big mall and a big 
commercials road that goes through it, almost everyone says, oh, you're from Natick, the mall. And I say, yeah. And then there's this moment of quiet. And this is a suburb of Boston. It's a suburb of Boston. Okay. And and you're from Concord. I'm from Concord, which is another suburb of Boston. (laughs) I have lived elsewhere, I feel the need to say. But I've been over this on this show before. I idealize Mm -hmm. Massachusetts as a. You uh, do? I do in this weird way. It's like a liberal haven. It's the home of the the transcendentalists. Like mm-hmm. you, you grew up on Walden Pond. I was. I would like to say I was on the pond, but I grew up in a. Yeah, no, I did. I went to high school across the highway from Walden Pond. All right. Um, and that's right. It's the home of the transcendentalists. It's the home of Revolutionary War stuff. Um, it's a. It is. It's a great area, and and um, it, you know, I do feel really proud. We were the first state to have gay marriage. Um, the you know. The health care, Obamacare kind of was conceived of here. There's a lot of cool stuff here. We get a bum rap for being for for a lot of uh, stuff that's not so great. Well, no, because this is small minded people. Well, no, it always comes up uh, in the on the show where people talk shit about Boston. And I've only been to Boston mm-hmm. once. And I'm like, people hate Boston on this show. Yeah, they hate it sometimes. And I'm like, what? Like, I had a great weekend there, like riding around on the on the uh, what's it called? The M? What's the it? T. The T. The M. Yeah. <laughs> the, the T. I they was, tried to, I think they tr- they tr- they're trying to call it Charlie. Oh, well. but people still call it the T. Charlie, what's that all? Yeah, about? I, I don't know. I think they like some kind of branding company came in and <laughs> thought it was cuter. But uh, you know, every, it's this is the thing about Boston. People have it's just no bullshit, and people were like, whatever, it's the T. Yeah. So there's so anyone new, I think, calls it Charlie. I'm not sure where it's at right now, but okay. I'm I'm sticking with T. It's just right. I have no. No patience for Charlie. And growing up in Concord, like, is Concord affluent? Is the town of like Ralph Waldo Emerson? Is it has it grown up yeah. to become like a nice, like cushy suburb, or what is it? It like, has. It used to be a little. I mean, it was never downtrodden in any way. But um, when I was there, it was more old money. You know, it was gauche to spend your money. You would never know who had money and who didn't. Um, so there's these beautiful, old, dilapidated houses, um, some not so dilapidated. But now it seems like a lot are um, it, it's kind of coming up and there's more a little bit more, more new money, more big McMansions being built. It's a little bit different. But, it, you know, if you go into Concord Center, you'd never know. It's, it's just a beautiful town. I had no idea of it when I was growing up there. But It's, it's weird, this whole thing about uh, gauche to spend your money. Like I'm all for mod- mm. I'm all for modesty and I'm all for restraint and consumption. I think those are like mm. noble things. Yeah. Uh, but I was thinking about this the other day where like this whole thing where it's like impolite to talk about money. Mm. Uh, and I, was, I hate that. I know I do too. And I had this, I had this idea in my head. I was like, Oh, so I think this is some sort of theory propagated by like, you know, the oligarchs who just don't, oh, yeah. who, who just don't want to be questioned about their money. Like they don't want to even have that conversation. So like they just made it like it's rude true. to talk about it at all. Is that, am I a conspiracy? Nut? I, no, I, I absolutely agree because it, who, it does not behoove them to talk about money. Yeah, you know, it, nobody's nobody wants nobody wants to talk about money if someone who doesn't have it is the one doing the talking to someone who does have it. Um, but I think it's such an interesting issue, and I think class is such a real problem in this country, especially as someone who works in publishing and with a lot of writers. I mean, you can't get away from it. You know, who is working and writing and raising kids, and who is able to write? and just raise kids. And there's a lot of unspoken tension, I think. Well, sure. Yeah, across the board, increasingly so. And I feel like, uh, mm. I feel like there needs to be like a, like a more open dialogue about that stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's cropping up here and there online. There was that piece that someone wrote about being thankful that her husband supported her and, 
then everyone got all mad about that, which was, I think, you know, both sides of it are, are important to put out there because I think without it, everyone feels like, what am I doing wrong? Why don't I have enough? Why don't, you know, why can't I talk about it? And I, I actually, just... I actually read, I, I think I either read a, uh, an excerpt of that piece on this show in a monologue or else I just oh. talked about it, but I love that piece. That's I thought a, it was great. Yeah, that's exactly what I want. I mean, like, at least that lady's yeah. honest. I forget. I, I want to say her right. name is Anne, like Anne something, but whatever, yeah. wh- whoever she was, and my apologies for not remembering. <laughs> whoever that, I don't remember either, whoever but that, I don't remember anything. Yeah, whoever that affluent lady was. Um, you know, <laughs> that rich, yeah, right. That, that rich writer. Taken care of, right. I felt like there was, like, real, uh, she showed some character and was, like, at least had the stones to kind of say where she was oh. and put it out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think it's great, and I think that... Um, I wish more people were honest about it. You know, I, it, I get it. You don't want to sit there and say, oh, I'm funded by this person. It's not, you know, it's not a... It's painful. It's painful, but, you know... It's painful, I, it's I think painful to talk about money. Like, people... It really is. Like, if like if you, like, I mean, I'm the same way. Like, you start, like, going, so what's, like, you have to make a spending plan. You should write down your expenditures. Mm-hmm. Like, you start to do that, and, it, you know, you start to get, like, tight in the chest, and it's like, oh, God, this is this hurts. I feel stressed. and right. Yeah, no, it is the source of so much stress or I just I, I do I have this uh for me I just zone out or I, I kind of just it's like oh I ugh, you know, taxes. I, I can't I almost feel like I have some kind of I justify it by myself by thinking I have almost kind of a weird learning disability. <laughs> I can't I'm sorry, I can't do taxes. Yeah, I can't yeah. I can't really can't talk about them. It's just you we have this visceral response to it. And it, it because it represents so much more, obviously. And um so it, I think it's good that people are talking about it more. I think the internet loans itself to openness about, you know, topics like that, sure. which is good. Yeah. So podcasts. This is where it's this is where it's and happening. <laughs> That's true. It's all coming out. So what kind of what kind of you had a bucolic, uh, you know, kind of blissful, happy childhood in Concord? Was it? Yeah, I did. You know. Um, I was lucky. I have a brother and a sister. Um, it was bucolic until my mother passed away when I was 13. Oh, and then the shit kind of hit the fan. But what, um, what happened? She had cancer. She had skin cancer, um, melanoma. And so she passed away when I was 13. And, you know, I always say people always say, oh, that's such a hard age. There's no good age right. for it to happen. Um, but I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. So it took me a a little bit of time to realize, wait a minute, nobody, my dad was working a lot. My sister had gone to college. My brother was off working a lot too. So I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can have huge parties. Yeah. So (laughs) I was, I wasn't the best teenager. Um, but I think we did the best we could. Um, and my dad, was your mom uh, out in the sun a lot? Like, was it, was it just random? She, well, she had the skin type. She had red hair and freckles. Uh Um, so there is definitely a certain skin type. And this was back in the, early 80s when nobody, you know, we were all suntanning. I think she wore stuff, but it wasn't like it was today. Yeah. You know, I I remember like peeling layers off my sister's back and saying, ha, that looks like the state of Texas. You know, you wouldn't, it just wasn't, it doesn't, didn't carry the horror that it carries today. I'm Um, I'm terrified of this one because I'm, I'm not red. I'm not a redhead, but like, yeah, I'm fair. I'm fair. I'm a little freckly. Um, Mm. I was out in the sun a lot when I, you know, when I was a kid, like who knows, man, it freaks me out. Yeah. You wear your sunscreen. You really, you know. I don't, I, I don't I, even go outside during the day. If the sun, that's that's even better. Yeah, I'm a shut in. I don't want anything to do yeah, with it. That's good. That's good. Um, yeah, no, I'm like a crazy person with my kids. They're so, you know, I just oh, come here and we slather them down, and they go in the water and we slather them again, and you know, yeah. I, you know, and for obvious reasons, I can't, 
you know, sit down and say, listen, you know, this right. is why I'm doing this, but right. it's in my head. <laughs> so <laughs> but, so like, did you, uh, I mean, 13 years old, I mean, that's obviously a bit, like you say at any age, it's a big loss, but like, do you feel like yeah. that was, uh, did that make you a writer or contribute to you becoming a writer? Or were you like heading that direction anyway? That's such a good question. And I've never really thought of it. Um, no, it didn't really. I, you know, I didn't get interested in writing and seriously reading until I was in college. I, um, I think it made me more self-sufficient and it, it made me grow up quicker than I would have. Um, but I don't think I got, you know, I was really, I just wanted to earn a lot of money. <laughs> um, and I thought law school seems like the good thing. And so I, I ended up, um, studying really hard. And I went to college. I went to um, undergrad at McGill University in Montreal and studied political science. How did you, and I was sort how, of, how did you wind up at McGill? I don't really know. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, my dad was sort of like, yeah, whatever, apply to wherever. They didn't have an essay. <laughs> um, I wanted to go somewhere that felt really far away. I was, I was really into international things and um, that felt far, but wasn't so far from, from here. Um, Montreal is about five and a half hours from, so, from Boston. Uh, how are you into international things as an 18 year old kid? Um, I did a couple, I, I took, I was really into languages. So I took Russian and French in high school. And I just, I always, I did a bit of reading. I loved the Russian writers. I loved German writers. Um, I liked the idea of travel and I think I traveled as much as we could afford to. Um, but I, I, I think I just wanted to escape really yeah, <laughs> just like, in a safe way, right? <laughs> five right. and a half hours away. Um, so, yeah, so I sort of followed that path. And then I went my junior year, I spent a semester in France and I took one class on uh, it, was, it was a Canadian school there. It was sort of an extension of McGill in that way. Where? I took one um, in southern France, outside what? of Nice. Outside it was nice. just crazy. Yeah. So nice. Yeah. Um, so I took this class in Canadian short story writers, Canadian writers, and just flipped and was like, what the hell am I doing? I don't really love these political science classes. I don't really, you know, I need, I just got it for the first time. I never really got um, literature in a way that I did over there. And, and I just kind of dropped everything and finished up my degree, got a little more into women's studies, um, messed around for a few, for, uh, a few years, not doing much. And then, um, I, I just kind of backed into writing. I, it was never, I was not an English major. I was not, you know, it was just a whole weird thing. So I, um, I remember having this talk with my dad. I, after um, college, I moved out to Colorado for a few years and just kind of goofed off. And he said, you know, you've always been able to write papers really well. You can write really fast. And I said, well, I don't know that that should be my career. And he said, well, why not? You know, thinking, why don't you go into business writing or something where you can support yourself? And I said, what about creative writing? And I think he was like, no, 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 that's not where I was going with that one. Right. But um, I just got it in my head. And then, you know, that was it. Went. Yeah, that was it. So you went out to where did you go to Colorado? I, I went to the to CU Boulder. So I'm familiar. Oh, you did. Yeah. Sure. I lived in Boulder. Oh, I lived yeah. in Denver for six months in a crazy studio apartment with two friends on Colfax Street. Uh -huh. Um we had, you know, we could hear the drive-bys every night. It was great. And then I moved out to Boulder for three years. Whoa. Okay. So yeah. did you do a lot of drugs? You know, um, uh, more in high school and college. Okay. Yeah. 
I got it out of the way. So in I, I felt like when you go to Boulder um, after college, I sort of went there with a I'm going to just get healthy feeling, which I didn't at all. But I just, I, you know, I sort of cut back on a few things. Um that's a good. But I mean, yeah, it, 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 like it sort of induces that in you, that town. Like it's so. It does. There's so much to do outside. Like I, I got, I got really into all that stuff when I was there. Mostly like as did a you? way of like recovering from hangovers. But like that's how I learned. Right. You know, in college. You did. Yeah. yeah but it so was were like, you were you one of those people running up the creek path? Like you oh, know. Sure. Yeah. Up in the mountains, yeah. I would go. Training. Tra- and I, tra- I would. No, I'm not training. Just like I love to go trail running, and like I would just run around, yeah. run around on the mountains, and like yeah, sweat it out. It's good. Yeah. No, it's. I think that's. I think the majority of the people are sweating it out on those trails. Yeah, right. But something. everyone was doing. Everyone was doing it better than me. So I. Fe- I always felt like, ah, oh, maybe just being here will rub off. And then, I think after three years, I thought, I think I'm. I'm probably meant to be back east again. Yeah. I'm just too cynical. I'm not fit enough. Yeah. You're like <laughs> I'm not going to make my living as a Rolf masseuse. I'm out of here. I'm not. I'm yeah. exact. Bingo. Bingo. Right. It. So. It, yeah. Pretty much. We're. Right. We're not going to go that route. Um. So uh, spiritually, where are you? Like, I mean, okay. do you are you atheist, huh. religious, anything? Um, I'm pretty atheist. Um, I am a lapsed Jew, married to a lapsed Catholic. So it's just it's a weird kind of shit shit show raising these kids because no, we, we don't know what we're doing. I'm a lapsed. What Catholic. are you doing with yours? You're I'm a lapsed a, Catholic. Yeah, my but my family's still hardcore, or at least you know compared uh, compared to me. And like, I'm the only. Yeah. I'm the only. Uh, apostate so it's a little weird when like we're all together i feel like my parents are like what are you doing and then my wife <laughs> my, my wife just has nothing like it's just like nothing, nothing. yeah so it's yeah. just like in me i've just i've i've been i've been out since i was like a, a kid and uh i just uh, you know I'm, I'm i'm trying to become more um open and like less critical yeah. like when reactive you know to it but it's right. hard it's hard when yeah. you were raised in it and then you like wanted out to not have a little bit of, uh, you know, animosity or, you know, you know what I'm saying? You just, uh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I was raised Jewish and, um, but my mother died when I was 13 soon after my bat mitzvah. So I, I, you know, I remember she was really sick when I was getting ready for my bat mitzvah. Oh, we're going to just pr- pretend we don't hear that right now. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, that's right. Um, so yeah, I remember I never believed in God. I always got in trouble in Hebrew school. I remember we had to draw a picture. I think this I could be making up the stories, but whatever. We'll pretend it happened. Um, we had to draw a picture of what we thought God looked like, and I refused to draw anything. And the teacher got really mad. I just was always getting in trouble. And the ki- I just I hated everything about it. I felt uncomfortable and bored and itchy, and I, I just felt like this is not my world. Um, so after my bat mitzvah, I just my dad and I looked at each other and we sort of said, "Temple, what do we think?" And we said, I, "Yeah, no, we're we're done." <laughs> yeah, right. It was. I mean, it's awful, and it was. It meant a lot to my mother. Um, and I can. I I think I've evolved to the point where I can appreciate it intellectually, but it's just not going to so much be my thing. Right. Um, like you, you don't want you don't want to do it if it's not your thing because then it's just insincere. Right. Then you're just a right. fraud, and it's like, what? Well, I'm not doing this because I'm not doing this for the right reasons. Exactly, exactly. And I, I can't, you know, there's there is just a, I think you're either one of those people or you're not. And and I just I never have been. I um. You think it's genetic? I, ooh, maybe it's all my dad's fault. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. I mean, I think if you force people to do, so, I, I think a lot of us go the opposite route as we were raised um, from we were raised. So I, you know, I know so many people that were raised 
nothing and kind of are like inching their way through a UU, you know, let's feel our way back to this kind of thing. Um, we joined a, or we go to a UU church. I shouldn't even say we join it. it. Unitarian? Yes, our Unitarian that's Universalist. Very, that's very Concord, Massachusetts. Is it? UU. Yeah. You know, UU. Yeah. yeah. I just assume everyone knows. Um so it's kind of, I mean, it's the most non-church church you can go to. There's no, there's no cross. There's no Jesus. There's no mention of God, um, which is nice. But even that, I feel like, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know that we so much even need that. You go every Sunday? Um, oh, God, no. Okay. We've been maybe twice. That's the, other thing about, that's the other thing about the Unitarians. They don't even go. You... They don't care. <laughs> right. they, they have, they're the most low-key. They have some kind of thing on the Cape every year, and they're kind of like, you can come. There's nothing going on while we're there. We're just going to be there. Yeah. And you don't have to come. It's so low key. It almost yeah, – and that in myself makes me feel like mm, now I'm back in Boulder. I don't, I'm not sure that's my thing either. Right, right. <laughs> I just want to get – it's like church without people is the ideal. Just us. It's exactly just a, right. Just a quiet room. <laughs> just a quiet room with some nothing st- on the wall. High, like some vaulted ceilings and some stained glass. I'm down. But I am like, all over that. I yeah. anybody else there. So – no. Uh, what do you tell your kids when they ask what God is? They ever ask those kinds of questions? They do, and I, I, I fumble. I just—it's hard. Um, and they're eight, so they're not—you know—I, I, I can't, I can't kind of slough it off like I used to be able to do. They're starting to, to you know, figure out the Santa thing. And I was raised Jewish. I mean, I, I think a lot of Jews are raised <clears throat> to feel like those who believe in Santa are kind of morons. Um, and you just have to sit there and kind of, oh, well, there's everyone else, even though you're jealous as hell. Right. Because really, at the end of the day, it's like, come on, our holiday sucks compared to yours. Yeah, but you, um, have, but you have more holidays. Jews have so many holidays. Yeah, but they, they're so depressing. They're all like atonement and, you, you know, you can't eat. You know, you can't eat bread. It's all about what you can't do, and you and you did wrong things. There's not, you know, we're not. I mean, Easter and Christmas alone kick the ass of every Jewish holiday. I mean, it's just, it's not even a, a competition. So they, so at any rate, it's hard for me now that they're sort of asking more sophisticated questions about Santa because we do. I mean, we're the worst people. We do, we we do all the commercial crap. None of the church. I'm constantly begging my husband to explain things. Like, you know, for Easter, I said, would you please? Explain the crucifixion for God's sake. And he's like, no, I'm not. who cares if they know? And, I, you know, I think at least they should know what it is. They should have some. But so I think they can they can sense our discomfort. And um, whenever, you know, they'll, they'll sort of they, they've asked about God and I'll say, well, this is what a lot of people believe. And, assume, you know, I'm not fooling anyone. Right. Oh, OK. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then who's Jesus? Well, a lot of people believe that, you know, and then they're going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, whatever. You know, well, so I'm just breeding myself, basically. Well, yeah, but here's the thing. You said something interesting earlier about how, like, people often tend to do the opposite of their family. So are you setting your mm-hmm. children up to become, like, very pious religious people? That is my fear. Right. Yeah, like right wing. They're going to, you know, I, I do feel like there's always that danger. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to, you know, it's sort of, but then you have to be true to yourself as a parent. I think it's really easy as a parent to get into this kind of, you know, I'm doing everything just right. And we live in this culture (laughs) where you, you know, you tell your child this, there was this letter going around again, the internet about what to tell your child when they start to question Santa's existence. And I was like, you know, it's just not me to talk about the magic in the world and the, you know, No, I told, I told my daughter last year, she's four, when she was four. You did? I, I just, like I blurted it out. I couldn't deal. She was like, "Is he real?" That's great. And I no, but here's the, here's what's interesting. I sort of I sort of told her it wasn't like super. I didn't like sit her down and be like, 
It was, it was kind of like I said it quickly and was just, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> what flustered. What did you say? I was like, oh, no, it's just a person in a costume. You know, don't, you know, it's not, it's not a real thing, you know. And the, the thing is, is that uh, she then continued to believe and was just as excited at age four as she well, was because, at age three. She just because wants then, it. Right. He, she wants it. That's the thing. They want it. It doesn't matter. The guys in the costume are just guys imitating the real thing. Right. So, you know, we went through I we had that goddamn elf on the shelf for a few years and he caused nothing but anxiety in my house. My kids were like, ah, you know, I just ripped something. I'm not going to get a present. And they would just they would touch him and just break down and, you know, moans and sobs. And yeah. finally, the thing drove me so crazy. I just looked at them. I said, you know what? No, this he's a stuffed animal. Right. He's nothing. Enough. He's nothing. Right. And my son looked at me and said, you have just. You have taken all the magic out of life. <laughs> well, he said that to me, and I thought, like, "Honey, that's my oh, job." Yeah, they're, right. When this is only the beginning, because let me tell you what else doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Uh, so I want to ask you. I want to change. I want to shift gears and ask you okay. about uh, best American short stories. Okay. Uh, you edit the best American short story series. I do. Okay. So I'm the I'm the series editor. I'm the person who reads. Um, Every eligible short story published in this country every year, and I I pick out 120 to pass along to a a guest editor, and they and sometimes with me and sometimes without me, they pick 20 that go in the book every year. Okay, so wait a minute. How do you how does this even work? How does a short because I think my listeners uh, will be interested in this. How does a short story become eligible to be included in Best American Short Stories? So it has to be published in an American or Canadian magazine that is distributed somehow um it cannot be a an excerpt of a novel or anything longer it, it cannot be translated uh, uh let's see if i can do this from memory i think that is it so, but that you, actually does disqualify you know some out there an internet story like you can't it's not it doesn't count if you're just published on the internet well, my my deal is I say if you want to print it out and send it to me, I will read it, but I can't comb the internet and it, there's just too, you know, I can't keep up. And you read so, and you read everything? I try to. You ever like but if you like you read the first page and you're not into it, you just toss it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, to. I mean, I read such a, it's me. I think people think there's a, like a little factory of elves that work for the best American short stories. It's me it's in my attic office. It's you. Um, yeah. So I have one reader that does help me sometimes, but mostly it's me. And, um, and I do, I mean, I think after, you know, in the beginning I, I slaved over each story more, but you just know, you know, after, I, this is my ninth year, 10th, something like that. Um, ninth year. So you, you just start to know after a while. So yeah. You have an um, instinct. And do you, do you have, like, do. Do, do you have full editorial control? Like, do you get to make the calls or is there like, do you have a, when you say you have a guest editor, mm. are they allowed to green light the inclusion of a story? Like how does the actual power yeah, mechanism so work? Usually. Um, so I, you know, I always say to them before I start reading, you know, let me, some people want to read along with me. Some people say I'll see you in November. You know, it, it really varies depending on the guest editor and how they want it to run. But, um, I, you know, the way it usually works is I give them 120 stories. They don't usually read on their own. Um, they come back to me with a list. I usually keep my own list, um, as I'm reading throughout the year. So they'll come back to me with a list and usually we go back and forth, um, a few times. And, uh, you know, if, if they've, left out a few that I thought were really strong. I'll push for it. Or if they've, um, 
put in some that were at the bottom of my list. I'll kind of, you know, my goal is to make sure they can defend their choice. And they're the name on the front of the book. They're the bigger name. I'm not the one that, you know, is carrying the book. But I, I do think it's important that they be able to just defend their choices and, and um, that it makes sense. And also as a collection, sometimes there's issues of balance or. Well, yeah, one of my Twitter followers wants to know, like, do you ever, have you ever had like a heated disagreement with the editor of the, you know, the, the name on the cover of the book where you really felt strongly that a story should not be included and then. They put, yeah. Th- yeah, that happens. Yeah. Who- oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, and without getting too specific about things, I think, you know, it's always surprising to me. I, when I started this, I thought, oh, it's going to be so easy to, to, to figure out who likes what. And I remember um, it's not that way. I mean, the, I worked with Alice Siebold and I thought, oh, there's lots of good violent, you know, here's some good dark stories to center. And she didn't go for that at all. Huh. So it's hard to know who's going to like what. Um, some people, who else have you worked with besides Alex? I, okay. So let me open the thing. Here's my, here's my list. Wait. Oh, I don't know if I have a, <laughs> um, okay. I can get you to 2012. Hold on. I'm going to read it to you. Stephen King, Selman Rushdie, Alice Siebold, Richard Russo, Geraldine Brooks, Tom Parada, Elizabeth Strout, Jennifer Egan. And this year is, uh, TC Boyle. And I'm also... I don't plug this one. Um, I'm also it's the hundredth anniversary of the series is coming this year. The first one was published in 1915. So Houghton Mifflin is publishing a great book called 100 Years of the Best American Short Stories, guest edited by Lori Moore, oh, no um, co-edited by me, and that's that'll be out in October too. So how do you collaborate with these people? Are you are you like uh, on the phone with them? Are you actually getting to meet them? What like what's happening? It's really different um you know for each one it's different some people deliver me a list and say you know i'm not you know and i'll sort of push 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 and i I, it's just there's there's not a lot of give there some people i'll go to lunch and we'll sit down and hash through it um I'm trying to think of some more interesting stories about the talking you know usually it's email usually it's a lot of back and forth thing um i talk to jennifer egan a lot on the phone um, who, who do you Lord, who, who is most impressive? Can you say that? Like, I, mean, I won't. I, no. won't, I won't make you shit talk anybody. But was there somebody? No. You won't do that. No, I can't. Oh my god, no. Okay. No, that you know what? And I'm not. This is. I'm going to sound like the. You know, I'm being a diplomat, and I am. But <laughs> I'm, I will say, and this, but it's still true. Everyone is totally fascinating in a different way, and it is like my job is like having a book club with some. You know powerhouse different writer every year yeah it's it's great you that's get you how, that's just how get i feel a, about this show it's a I yeah can't, exactly right i can't, it's, I can't it's pick my cool. favorite i can't pick my but favorite. i would be your favorite of right? course yeah i mean that's I mean, yeah okay we'll there. just throw that in there yeah um <laughs> yeah no it's hard to it really is hard to to say and i think that um you know it's just people have different there's there's good in different ways. I've been really lucky. I will say I have not had anyone that has just thought, oh my god, I, I can't. You know, we're we're on different planets or anything. I I feel like I've worked pretty well with everyone, and 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 um, and that's I'm glad. <laughs> I'm really you glad. You never had a bad. You never had a, you never had a bad experience. I never had a really bad egg. No, thank okay. God. So I got. Yeah. I have some uh, Twitter followers who have questions okay. for you. Can I ask? Great. You yeah. Uh, somebody uh, wants to know, uh, D. Martin Campbell wants to know, like, what are the seasons of the short story? Do you see style and content cycles repeat over time? Like, are there certain kinds? Oh, of, yeah, for like, sure. What are some of the, like, story archetypes that you see, like, every year where you're like, oh, God, like another grief story or whatever it is? Yeah, right. I know. Divorced parents, um, circus stories. I see quite a lot of those. <laughs> um, 
You know, I one thing I will say I'm really happy to be seeing more of is stories about the economy. I'm always interested in stories that feel relevant, even if they're not topical, you know, just stories that feel like we're getting at something that hasn't been dealt with honestly and we're going to do it in the story. Um, let me think. I think there's been, you know, it's no surprise that dystopia has been in the zeitgeist lately, and that, that's starting to creep into short stories more. Um, I, I feel like that's really like on everyone's mind, like, oh, God, like – yeah. This, this, yeah, the, world's going to, the world's going to shit. Like, I, yep, you know, let's, yep. let's think about that. Let's meditate on that. And, you know, that, I will say, can be a hard thing to cover in a short story because um, <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes – and I'm just going to put this out there. This is a vast generalization. Sometimes I think dystopia is better treated in a novel when you have a little bit more room to spread your wings. And um, it, it's a tough thing to, to, to do in a story because I think in a story you need to set out some rules or cons some consistencies. And by nature of what a dystopia is, it doesn't lend itself to that. So it can be a little bit of a disorienting read sometimes. Not always, but um, I, I think that can be a, a tougher topic to tackle in, in short stories but i'm trying to think of other um circus other it's interesting that circus, circus is always there yeah circus people yeah, want, i don't know people want to be like i know what freaks are is that what it is like yeah a freak thing? oh yeah okay this is a big metaphor yeah, yeah. no <laughs> i think that i think there's a lot of things that new you know short stories tend to be the form of new writers and so you get a lot of stories about family and you get a lot of stories about whatever the opposite of family a circus or you know um uh, c people traveling in other countries, something that it's either sort of very close to home or very far from home tends to be the, the content of short stories. Right. Um, so, um, but trends right now, let me think. Um, I, I'm not detecting any, you know, a few years ago, the second person made a comeback. You go to the store, you buy right, this. Right. Um, so, and, and I, I kind of had to get over my, allergy of that i felt like oh it's like seeing someone walking in 80s clothes and they're right. trying too hard and, <laughs> but you know what it's okay if it's a good story it's a good story and you, you gotta learn to one thing i think i've gotten good at in my job is to get over my own prejudices and kind of you know say it's okay i didn't used to love sci-fi but there are some great sci-fi stories out there and you know yeah you have to you have to really open yourself up i was gonna say you gotta have taste i mean everybody has their own like, yeah. proclivities so like you have your yeah. things that you like they they inevitably make their way into best american short stories more often oh for sure yeah and um you know there were there are I, I wrote a piece about this i always wish there was more humor i always wish there was more diversity in short stories it is unfortunately still a very white world and um it, it's just it's it's a sad it's a sad thing every year i wish i wish there was more out there um that was more surprising and from, from different voices, not, not just, you know, ethnically diverse, socioeconomically diverse, sexually diverse, you know, there's a lot of room for, for, um, for some content to open up out there. What about, I so, have a, I have a, a Twitter follower who wants to know, um, well, what story is the best? Like, do you have a, a story that you point to that's just like, oh, my I mean, God. that's a stupid question. Like the best, I hate when people ask me those kinds of questions, but like, I know, right. Do you, do you have, but I mean, do you have a, <laughs> an example of a story that maybe you've published that was like so strong that it was memorable? Like where you're like, okay, I feel proud to have put that in the book. And I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, is there, is there a story you can point yeah. to that just like seems epic in your mind? Oh gosh, yeah. The, um, okay, I'm gonna just. I've, I've got a few of them sitting here. I, you know, my head is so full of stories right now because we're working on this hundred years book. So I'm still a bit in history. It's it's a really trippy place to be to have this many stories in your head. Right. Um, 
But I, you know, um, <laughs> let me see. What are some great stories that yeah, have been? What's in? making What's making the hundred year collection? Give me exa- an example of like. A- well, we just have galleys, so I can tell you some of that. It's been It's been top secret until now. All right, um, let's break some what, news. Give Give me a decade. I don't know. I'll tell you who's in it. Eighties. 80s. There's a lot from the 80s. Grace Paley, Charles Baxter, Mona Simpson, Richard Ford, Robert Stone. 90s. Uh, 90s. Alice Monroe. And I know everyone's going to say blah, blah, blah. She's always in there. But, you know, if you read as much as I did, you, you, you know, she really is, I think, one of the best out there. I mean, she who have I published. I know it's not the most exciting thing. She by far is one of the best writers that has so been in the series. How far up does it go? Does it go up to the present day? 2014. All right. So, what are some more? So, what, what's what are some of the contemporary, like really immediate contemporary stories that made okay. it in, into the anthology of best over the past century? Sure. So, the most recent ones from 2000 from 2010 to now are Nathan Englander's story called "What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank." Um, there's a, a a beautiful story by a writer named Julie Otsuka called "DM Perdidi." Um, George Saunders, I think, is tremendous and he his story is the semplica girl diaries and then there's a story by lauren groff which is fantastic called that the round earth's imagined corners lauren groff is is another writer um i think i'm i'm you know we published uh, gosh a story of hers from the atlantic a while ago that i thought was really tremendous and hello i'm forgetting the name of it because it's after six at night no it's all right i've I've had her i've I've had lauren on the show she's great she is great and a really unique voice. Um, you know, there's some really exciting new writers out there. This year's this year, the T.C. Boyle one, which hasn't been announced yet, so I can't talk about it. But there are some really fantastic new writers in there. I'm really excited. Small magazines, new writers. Um, I think I think people will will get into it. Awesome. And then, yeah. in addition to all this, you're also writing your own fiction and raising I'm children. Also, you're yes. doing it all. You're living the life. I am. I'm like superwoman. I'm. It's, I'm not. I don't know how well I'm doing any of it, but I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, I think you're doing pretty well. So, how do you do yeah. it? What's your schedule look like? I don't. It's it's sort of chaotic. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, I thought I, I, I thought you just cut out. So my schedule, if I had a regular day, I get up. My husband's a teacher. He's gone by 6 in the morning, so I'm with the kids. I get them ready, bring them to school, usually come home, write for a few hours, um, procrastinate, eat, clean, eat, Twitter, Facebook, Twitter, Facebook. And then I usually uh, I usually save my reading for the early afternoon. Um, I try not to read before I write because I might inadvertently steal. Um, and then I go pick up the kids and, you know, I'm like boring old soccer mom in the afternoon, schlep them all over the place, make dinner. Um, it's not, you know, it's not the most exciting thing, but it, I do have to cover a lot. I do have a book coming out soon. Um, this year is crazy. So I have a novel coming out May 5th. I have, Which, I, let's I, plug I, it. Let's plug it. Let's plug let's it. Let's plug it. The daylight marriage, best book you've ever read. Right. Just going to say that. Go buy it. Um, go buy it. May 5th, 5515. Um, I have the annual best American short stories coming out in October and then the retrospective a hundred years also coming out in October. So it has been a kooky past six months. Wow. Um, you know, it, I just have paper everywhere. How does it work? <laughs> well, you're the, you're the editor of the best American short stories. Do you get a cut of sales? Like, do you get a, are you like the author? Do you get like a percentage? So I split the guest editor and the guest editor and I, so this year it would be TC Boyle and I split what would be a regular royalty. That's gotta be pretty good. That so thing, half, that thing yeah. sells, that thing sells, right? It does pretty well. 
well. It does pretty well. Yeah, people like, you know, it's a great book for writers. It's a great gift book. It comes out in time for Christmas. Right. Um, You know, you really do, I think, we've we've helped a lot of new writers get more readers, which is really exciting to me. Um, It's an institution. It's an an institution, yeah. How, how How did you get that seat? That seems like a lucky seat to get. Well, I slept with a lot of people, and uh, <laughs> no, and I don't mean it accusatorily. I just mean yeah. I'm curious. Like, no, how, no, no. How did it, I didn't take how, it that way. How did it, how did it happen? Like, how did it happen? Um, I was, you know, the, my I was an um, an acquiring editor, which means I just signed up books. I was a regular old editor at Houghton Mifflin for ten years, and then um, they came to me and offered it to me, and I was pregnant at the time, so it seemed like a good way. It was part-time versus full-time, so that seemed like a good moment to, to do that. Um, so it, I just kind of s- took over, and my first one was 2007 with Stephen King, and that was the same year I published my first book and ha- gave birth to twins. My God. Yeah, it was insane. Um, and yeah, and then I've just kind of kept with it since then. And you like it? I do like it. It's really flexible. It's great as a mom to have this job. Right. Um, you know, it's a lot of reading of short stories, um, but, the, the, you know, it's really exciting to discover whatever. I, I, I'd say discover new people. All the stories have been published, so um, someone else has discovered them first. But it, it's great to, to, you know, to read small magazines, to figure out the new voices that are out there, to, you know – I remember we published a story by Roxanne Gay a few years ago, and I remember thinking, she is going to be something. This is just great, you know, and then, you know, I, it felt like five minutes later, boom. And so there's been a few versions of that. It's really gratifying. It's, it's, it is a really, it's, it's a really great job. I get to be an editor without pissing anyone off. Right. And, well, <laughs> and it's got to help your writing, too. You're, it's like, it's like, yeah, it's for like sure. your job to stay current and to, like, read a lot. Mm-hmm. And like by like having that enforcement mechanism, especially in the context of having a family and all that that entails and being super busy, mm-hmm. uh, it's nice to have that built into your job, you know, where you're like, I got to oh, read. I get, yeah, paid, I get paid to read. It, absolutely. I mean, I do feel like I have this very, I am, especially lately, given how much I have going on, I haven't had as much time to read what I want. So I feel like I'm stuck in the sidelines kind of watching a different show that everyone else is watching a little bit but that said you get to see stuff that no one else sees so so it is it's pretty great do you ever put your own stuff in there um no you know it's funny i haven't written stories in a god in ages and i think it's because of this job i just i don't i have no desire um yeah, it's like if you cook the if you cook the meal, you don't even want to eat it, you know. Right. It's like the best chefs are eating hamburgers. Right. Not that I'm a great chef, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah I understand. <laughs> I understand. You're just like oh, I'm disgusted by this. I want out. Yes, yes, I want out. I'm sick of it. I've been around it all day. You know, I I worked at when I was um, oh god, fifteen. I worked at a truck a truck stop selling donuts. I still can't eat donuts. I Wait, don't know when what you my... were fifteen. You worked at a truck stop. Yeah, I did. I know. I was like the weird person in Concord that yeah, fifteen maybe. I, I could sixteen max. 16 max. There's a truck this stop, was back in, a the, truck stop in Concord? There, yes, it was uh, some kind of dewdrop donuts, donut something. The transcendentalist truck stop? <laughs> That's right, exactly. Would you like the Thoreau? Yeah, right. <laughs> they're selling donuts. They're selling, they're selling uh, civil disobedience at the. Uh, yeah, exactly. But it was, you know, there are part. it was West Concord, which is a whole different bird from Concord. Yeah. West, Con- <laughs> West Concord's rough. <laughs> it's really rough. It's the, other, it's the other side of the pond. It sure. <laughs> yes, it is. You don't want to go over there. 
Nobody's yeah. Bad no, nobody, news. Nobody's transcending on that side of the pond. Nobody's going anywhere. Absolutely right? not. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and you worked as an editor. So you like you've had like a you've had deep experience in publishing. Um, you know, up and down the chain of command. Yes, I've done a lot of different things. It's interesting, and it's changed so much. I mean, it's weird for the publishing better. A, for the better. For the worse. I think. I think mostly for the better, um, some for the worse. You know, I, I do think that it's been hard on authors. Ebooks, this whole ebook struggle for pricing has not been easy on a lot of authors. Um, so that's been tough, and the, especially the midlist author. It's been hard to see um, some authors that I think are really great get kind of shoved to the sides of the business. Um, but I think you know the flip side of that is there's a lot more opportunity than there used to be. This podcast, you know, was not around ten years ago. Right. I don't think, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, just social media. There's so many. There's so much more opportunity for um, democratic reading for readers to step forward and have their say, which I think it's mostly good. <laughs> I mean, you know, people can get their stuff out there. People can form communities. People, can- yeah make the art they want to make and do the things they want mm-hmm. to do media wise, but it's just, everything has become a niche. That's the, that's the consequence, yes. you know? So you have to be willing to accept that, you know, with, with this much fragmentation, pretty much everything's a niche and to make loud noise is really hard. Yes, exactly. And it's, um, and, 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 you know, I, I have a ton of friends, quote friends, whatever you call them, Facebook and Twitter, and you watch people stumble through it. And some people do it more gracefully than, than others. And I think, what ends up, you know, there's just more, more, more steps to the process than there used to be. It used to be kind of print reviews and, and, um, you know, there were, there were a few ways to get the word out about a book and now there's endless ways. So, you know, it's good, but it doesn't, doesn't always benefit everyone. Like, and do you feel like working as an editor on that side of the line helped you as a writer when you set out to do your own novels and like you try to figure out what to write or how to do the business part of it. Like, did you, did that inform choices that you made creatively? Did it help you strategic? Did it help you strategically when it came time to go out? I mean, did you, did you sell, did you sell your novels to the the publisher you used to work for? Forgive me for no, 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 no. That's fine. Um, no, I didn't. And in fact, I didn't really tell anyone I was writing one. So my first one, I didn't tell anyone until after I had sold it. Cause I thought, Oh, I'm going to look like such an idiot if I can't even, you know, <laughs> and I didn't want to sort of, you know, have it sent to one of my coworkers or anything. So no, that was that a few people knew, but mo- I mean, a lot of people didn't. Um, and then by the time this new one, um, was sold, I was, I was doing this job. So now I'm an editor, but I'm really, I'm on contract. I work from home. Um, I poke my head in the office every now and then, but I'm really on my own more. Um, so, um, so it's been such a different experience now, but having edited before, I think it made me, um, I'm hugely self-critical and it probably made me even more so. (laughs) I probably, probably didn't need so much, but, um, and you know, I think it helped because it helped me kind of modulate my expectations I had dealt what, with so many mean? authors Finan- going financially or, or just like in terms of how hard it is to get anything acquired, how hard it is to get any or no, how hard it is to get people to read your book, right. um, what it's like to go on book tour. I mean, I think I'd worked with so many authors and seen it from the other side of things. It's almost like everyone should wait tables at some point. You know, it's, it's that same theory. Then you'll understand what they're going through. If you're going to publish a book, it's nice to have edited beforehand and, and gone through that side of it. I'm, I think I'm um 
I, I've had this funny reaction with I, I a different uh, different house published my first book, but with both of my editors, I think they were a little bit tentative at first. And I thought, oh, you're an editor, you're gonna you're not gonna want to be edited. And I, I it took me no time to say, I'm so self loathing. Edit away. You can you know yes. rip it apart. I'm right. totally happy with that. Um, but I knew what to expect. I know the timeline a little bit more, which is nice. Um, I have a friend who a neighbor and a friend who's publishing. Uh, a great book called The Wednesday Group, um, and she is a teacher. And so this whole process has been really new to her. And it's been – I've been trying to sort of help hold, hold her hand a little bit um, because it, it's so mystifying. You know, who, you know, next is going to come the galley and next is going to come this step of the process. And to not know any of it can be really scary. So having gone through it as an editor I think does help. And, and you work really fast. I mean, you, your dad used to say you wrote faster. That's, does that hold? Oh your my fiction? god! I, you know, I did until I had kids, and then I like screeched to a halt. This last book took me way too long. Um, it I mean, was. Are you a person who like can write like manically, like ten thousand word sessions and stuff like that? Um, not really. Yeah, I used to be able to. I think it gets harder as you get older. Um, I I can write. Yeah, I, I mean, I probably I think any writer can write faster than the normal person. I think for most people, writing is hard. You know, any kind of uh, to sit down and say I need two pages is 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 not a welcome task for most people. Um, but so in in you know, as compared to someone who doesn't like writing, maybe I'm fast. Um, and and I think I used to be faster. But yeah, it's gotten harder with kids. It's gotten harder to um, get momentum. It's just time is so unpredictable. As soon as I'm up and running with something, someone gets sick or someone, you know, someone's class moved to this day. And, you know, it's it's my schedule is constantly at the mercy of other people. So it's a little bit hard to and when you don't have a predictable, you know, patch of time ahead of you, it's a little bit hard to let yourself go. But I feel, like, just I, I feel like sometimes that time pressure can be good. Like they, like even in, yeah. even though it's annoying, even though you're like, oh, God, if I could just get some peace and quiet. But then mm. every once in a while, like my uh, my wife and daughter will take off and I'll have. Uh, a lot more time than I usually do. And mm. sometimes I can be like, it's too quiet. Like I feel like yeah, lethargic yeah. or something. Like I've, <laughs> I've lost my edge. You know what I'm saying? I'm not like, yeah. I'm not like pushing against something. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, yeah. I'm not fighting for the time. No, I, no, I absolutely agree. And I think I'm, I'm better when I have deadlines and a schedule, but I think it's the unpredictability. It's the, you know, okay, I think I have an hour and I don't know that. And I, right. you know, it's hard to, when you're working on a longer project, a novel or something, it's hard to sort of say, well, I haven't gotten back into this kind of slow pace of it. Um, writing is sort of a, even, even if you write quickly, I think it's a quiet, slow rhythm that you get into in your head. Um, and it's really different from parenting, which is, you know, you're winging it and you're stressed and you're like, what the hell? And you got to kind of be creative and think on your feet all the time. It's a really different energy. Um, so I find it a little hard to go back and forth between the two. But how long does I'm it take? You to write, how long does it take you to write a novel? Oh, my God. I, I just read some blog post by someone that was saying it took me four months. Isn't that so long? And I was like, I almost threw my computer out the window. Um, I this one took me nine years. It's short. <laughs> so clearly it wasn't as if I was writing a word a day. I, it, it was it just involved a ton of revision. My first one took me three years. Um, I hope my next one does not take me nine years. I don't really want to spend that long on a 220-page you know, book ever again. But um, it was a tricky book to write, and it was um, it's dark, and it's you got some uncomfortable parts of it that I think I was avoiding for a while, and my editor helped kind of – it helped me get down to that, but it took me longer than 
than I than I wish it had. Like what? Can you say? Is it without spoiling? Can you talk about it? The dark parts. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's about um, so it's about a couple, a married couple. They have two kids and they have a fight. <laughs> they live in Boston. <laughs> they live in Natick, Massachusetts, near a mall. Um, no, <laughs> they do live outside of Boston, but he it's there's it's fiction, 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 fiction. He's a climate scientist. She's a florist. Um, they have a fight. She disappears, and it's just a. I think it's a really um, honest look at a marriage that's in trouble, and it's. Um, it's dark. It, it, you know, it's not a happy book. And I think I, I, for a long time, I had another story uh, kind of on this around it. And it took me a lot of time to carve that other story away that didn't need to be there and just let the kind of the darker story sit on the page alone. You know, um, but I think it's much better for that. Yeah, no, a lot of times. Yeah. A lot of times there is that yeah. like, weird, like uh, extra stuff. You know, yeah. or you scaffolding. Sort of, or, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so do you have any sense of why you're writing it? Like what was the psychological motivation? So I started it long ago. We lived in another town, a small, beautiful town, um, and I had the kids. And it, it was just kind of – I was reading the stories, and it, I had this very quiet life, and I, I kind of felt like we didn't belong in this town. Um, what town was it? I'm, not, I'm so not going to say. Why? Why? <laughs> because I, I just was a fish out of water was there. Was it in Massachusetts? It was in Mars. and um, What does it, Mars mean? On the planet uh, Mars? Are you avoiding? Planet Mars. Yeah, I'm avoiding. <laughs> um, it was somewhere – I mean it's not – you know, it's not going to take long to figure out what it was. But it's a beautiful town where I just felt like we didn't fit in. Um, and I was always the harried person with like, you know, with baby puke on my shirt with a dented old car. And everyone else had much nicer houses and cars. And I just kind of got in this weird headspace when I lived there. Also at that time um, – there, right after I started it, there was a murder of a woman named Rachel Entwistle. So her, she and her baby were shot in oh, her bedroom God. by her husband, and yeah. it was it was like two miles from our house. But the press descended on our town, <clears throat> and because I was, you know, at home all day with these kids, I would just drive by their house all the time, and I got really interested in it for some sicko reason. Yeah. Um, and I started to think, why are we as a culture so interested in stories like this? And why am I so interested? And I, I started – that was my indoor to this kind of our, our – our, you know, it's almost like the fairy tale of the the beautiful woman and the, the weird secretive husband and what's happened. And, and that sort of got me thinking about a story – that ended up being very different from that in the end, but that was my sort of indoor to it. God, yeah, it's weird too when you think about like murders, uh, you mm. think about suicides, you think about these crimes of passion. You know, whether yeah. it's like a passion meaning like some sort of sexual situation or just meaning like a really like heated emotion. Um, yeah, and then somebody does something like that drastic, and yeah. like a life is taken, be it their own or somebody else's, and. Uh, I, I do often think of those moments like, my God, like to get that dark and to lose that, mm -hmm. lose control like that and to do something with those kinds of dire consequences uh, is super heavy. And yeah, yeah. And it, and it, yeah. And I think this was around the time, you know, Lacey Peterson was all over the news just before then. And there was there were a lot of these stories of these beautiful women who went missing and their, you know, husband who had been living a double life in some way and what was that all about and um again my book didn't end up being one of these stories but that was my indoors this weird why are we interested in these stories as a culture and why why do i why am i driving past this house all the time well plus you're in this like you're in this tony uh suburb mm -hmm. of boston and yep. you know you're in this place where like everything is supposed to be perfect and there's right i'm assuming this is like young attractive couple 
Oh, absolutely. He was British. Um, he, you know, it was a really messy crime. He left a lot of clues, but it, it got a lot of attention and he skipped town right afterwards and went back to England. And, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was all over the place and it became really clear what his motivations were and what, you know, it was money what? and it was money. Maybe it was money. I think there was a porn addiction. I'm not even exactly sure what ended up being the deal, but I think money was a big part in the fact that he didn't have enough. But I'm not, you know, they rented in our town, but it was, it was the fact that it was this Tony town and they rented this beautiful house and this beautiful cul-de-sac and um, that this can, you know, really happen anywhere. But also why, why is that an interesting story to us? Well, but it, it, gets, is, it, but... It, but it gets at so many things. Like it's coming back yeah, full circle when it, we talk about money and class and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like the presentation, I know this as a parent. Um, you know, when you get into marriage and kids and all that kind of stuff and uh, you get into your adult years and professional identity becomes a thing, um, mm. like how, how we present to one another. Uh, like there's all this right. uh, there's all this code in terms of like, oh, what did what uh, your kid is in dance class? Is your kid in soccer? Is your kid doing this? Are, mm-hmm. you, are you overscheduled? Mm-hmm. Like all of these things are like signifiers. It bums me out. You know, I find. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so- I, you know, parenting is one of the most isolating things out there, too. I mean, I, I think a lot of us are lucky to have good friends and kind of allies in it. But I, when I lived in this town, I really didn't. And I, you know, I was saddled, you know, we had twins. I had this intense job. Um, and I, I just felt like I was really alone with it. And I was, you know, wasn't sleeping enough and it was just a kind of trippy headspace to be in that got me thinking about all this stuff. Yeah, I can see. I mean, it's like an extreme, yeah. it's an extreme example of, um, the artifice and the reality. Yeah, being absolutely. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's a big part of this book too, is kind of what do we show to the world versus what do we show to each other? And you know, see, what this is, is, this is why I'm a shut in. I'm trying to show the world as little as possible. Yeah. That way it's, I'm, I, I can feel like I'm authentic. Interesting. <laughs> but yet you're out here doing these podcasts. I'm, not, I'm in my garage for God's sake. You're in your garage, but your voice is everywhere. <laughs> yes, that's fine. That's fine. I don't mind if my, if my disembodied. Just don't show your skin. No, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm cloistered, but I, you know, as long as my disembodied voice is representing yeah. me, but it also, yeah. I, you know, like you want to be transparent uh, mm-hmm. But it gets hard to do, and then you know, like there's only so much transparency see that people can take in person. You know, it's almost better. Oh yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And I think so. You know, the, uh, uh, there's parts. Of, there are times in our life when that when it's some of this stuff comes to comes to a head, and one of them is when you have kids, um, and it's you know all of your insecurities clash with what you're what you feel like you're supposed to be presenting to the world, and I think that conflict is interesting. And and with marriage, I think I, I felt like I knew, and I you know know a lot of couples that struggle, but you ne- you never talk about it; it's taboo. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I just sort of went there in this book. That's, what, that's, what, that's the writer's job, right? we got to say yeah. things that other people aren't uh, able or willing to say. I mean, it's like... It's, right. I hope so. You've been, like, I mean, and, you know, it's dark, so you're going yep. to freak some people out. But I mean, it's... I uh, hope so. Yeah. you got to make them a little uncomfortable. What is it? To, to uh, defamiliarize the familiar, make uncomfortable exactly. the comfortable. Exactly. Desensitize. Right, right. Um, and, you know, I've gotten from people who've read it, they've sort of, there's been a lot of like, what was the, what was your point? Or what are you, what are you trying to teach the reader? And I'll say, I didn't have a point. You know, I'm writing, I'm telling a story and I'm, I have characters and I'm telling something that I feel needs to be told, but I'm, I'm told, but I'm not teaching a lesson. Right. Um, but there is a, there is a, there seems to be a need with this book to uh, figure out what the lesson is. So that's interesting. 
Well, I'm not I, sure what I, to make of that. I feel, but I feel like too, you must have a uh, one of the easier times of any writer getting blurbs for your books when they're done. Since you're, the, <laughs> you're the editor. Yes. You can be I like, know, hey, I put right? you, I put you in Best American Short Stories. Come up with a couple of sentences it's for me. It's all about blackmail. <laughs> no, you should, you should. It's like how my life is House of Cards, really about blurbs. <laughs> no, it's you know, it, it's. It's we. I will say. I think if you know a lot of people, it's almost more awkward because it's like having to go to your aunt and ask for money. Right. You know, it's almost easier to write. Write. You know, say that your aunt is a rich person who works in this foundation and has access to money. It's a lot easier to write a form letter to that person than to go to her and say, you know what, not doing it really. You know, here's what I need from you. Well, so like, it's it's you're, icky. Yeah, it's always you're, icky because you're cashing. You're you, you because you kind of know yeah. like you kind of know like they're gonna. Have have to say yeah most of them are going to feel obligated on some way to like help you out um since they know, since they yes know you no, though i don't know i feel there are you know to just to metaphor mixing here you feel like tori spelling a little bit yeah you know you there's a little bit of a yeah i'm in the business and you know and everyone kind of looks scant you know, there's a bit of a oh aren't you you do really need to do that you know get your daddy to whatever so it's it, there's a, a lot of discomfort with it i don't know the blurb process is awful I you mean, do, I do they help at all? So icky. They, do you think they help? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, um, probably, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I, 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 they probably do help to some extent, but not as much as maybe publishers think they do. Yeah. But I don't really know. It'd be an interesting thing to, to, if someone did an actual study of that. They're not going away. I feel like they're, no, a, no, like they're, they're not. They're, I know. They're, they're, they are an institution. The necessity Absolutely. of blurbs. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, icky. So you got uh, the book coming out in May. You're going to go on a tour. I, do. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing. Um, I get to go to Portland, Oregon. I get to touch down on the West Coast a little bit, and some in the middle, and a bunch out here. Um, I'm excited. It'll right. be cool. You like get the to tour. Ditch, ditch the kids. Yeah. Um, you know, initially I thought I, I did a, when I my first book came out. I was very pregnant with twins, and I just stopped eventually and canceled a few readings. And I, I thought I don't know that readings are the thing. I don't know if they help um, so much, and it, it does end up feeling like a mini bat mitzvah. You know, like there's my cousin <laughs> Sally and my neighbor, right. and I have to have all these poor people schlep out and come see me. Um, but I think I'm just excited to get out a bit. I mean, given I have eight-year-olds, we don't travel a ton. So I'm excited to, you know, have some grown-up time a little bit, even if it's me reading to one person. Or just like Maybe, sitting in yeah. like a, a pretty decent hotel room, just eating room Yeah, service. that's cool. Yeah. Right. No, I'm all over that. Yeah. That is that is yeah that right now is kind of like a fantasy for me. <laughs> sitting in a hotel room watching TV, it will be eating a soon. burger. Yeah. yeah, I can't wait. Oh, well, I uh, I've enjoyed this. This has been fun talking yeah, me too. with you. Congratulations! Thank you. Con congratulations on uh, the new novel. Congratulations on your big year. You got three. Thank books. Thank you so much. Three books rolling out. I know. Here we go. It's the year, it's the year of Heidi Pittler. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. Best of luck with everything, and, and my thanks once again. Thank you so much. All right, you guys, that's Heidi Pittler. Go get The Daylight Marriage. That's the new novel. It's due out from Algonquin in May. It's due out on May 5th. The 5th of May. Cinco de Mayo. The Daylight Marriage from Heidi Pittler. Check her out at HeidiPittler.com. Find her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Heidi Pittler, and she's also on the Facebook. Uh, and then look out for the Best American series. There's a couple of them coming out this year. Keep your eyes peeled. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com don't forget that this podcast has its own app 
the Other People app. It's free. Get the Other People app on your device. Get it in the app store of your choice. And uh, then you will have access to the most recent 50 episodes free of charge. And if you want to listen to everything, if you want to stream the deep archives, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. It's a very cheap, great way to support the show. I would appreciate that. And uh, also, don't forget to go to iTunes and rate and review the show. Please do that. If you want to email me, the uh, address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com if you have thoughts. Or you can tweet at me. Uh, I tweet for the show over at at other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Yeah, you know, this baby stuff, it's uh, it's not for sissies. It's stressful. It's hard not to think about it a lot. We can't know. There's no way to, you know, it's just like, thanks for the worries, Doc. I know you're trying to do your job and check everything, but these tests, it's a little nerve-wracking. Could be something, could be nothing, not sure. Just going to keep taking tests just so we can ratchet up your anxiety to uh, its maximal capacity. Positive thoughts. Please remember that E.M. Forster lived with his mother until his death at the age of 66 and that Edith Piaf was four feet eight, uh, four feet eight inches tall. Speaking of positive thoughts, <laughs> let me tell you about an author who lived with his mother until he died, and about a woman who was under five feet tall. That's it for now. Not that there's anything wrong with being under five feet tall. I didn't realize she was that small. Sang like a bird. Uh, that's it for now, I think. Is that it for now? Do you have any? Do you have anything you would like me to add? Dustin Hoffman <laughs> I just feels stupid I didn't hear him talking I feel like if I, w- if I would have been able to pick his voice out it's very loud in this restaurant I'm one of those people who kind of goes deaf in restaurants when there's it's really loud I can't hear it's hard for I have to like lip read just to like understand the person across from me I'm an old man it's a specific kind of uh, deafness But I was sitting next to him. And this is one of those restaurants where like the, the tables are jammed right up against one another. So I was really sitting next to the man. Didn't see him. So. I hope you enjoyed this. It's kind of cool to talk to uh, Heidi about the Best American series in particular. I feel like that I, I just never knew. I didn't. I, it's hard to imagine. There's one person doing that. It's her. The Daylight Marriage. Get her novel. Send me a... I should, maybe I should reinstitute voicemail. You can send me audio messages to... Uh, if you have like an iPhone, make an audio message. Send it to me at uh, letters at otherppl.com. If I like it, if you're sufficiently intoxicated, I might play it on the program. I'd like to thank Brad... For the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>